please can you remind me if you'll if you'll be so kind staring out into space asking god to hear my case trying to think of all things past how long will my memory last with purple angels Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. For those of you that are new, um, I just want to give you a little background about who we are and what we do and why we do it. Um, basically, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss, and we're going to also remove the isolation that goes with it and help people live with purpose. Together, we really feel we can get everyone to have a better understanding by just having these open conversations. Um, at our core, we believe collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle. And we know it's working because of all your likes and clicks and shares. You see, every time you like a show or a blog post or um, <clears throat> share one of our tweets, uh, share one of our articles on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, wherever it might be, you're pushing it out to your your family, your audience, your tribe. And there's a lot of people out there in your circles that you probably don't even know that are dealing with this. And the more information we can share, the more resources there are, the more likely they're going to reach out and grab it when they need it. We have to make this much more natural and, again, uh, more common so that people don't feel that they're the odd oddball out. Um, as for the show itself and all of our other platforms, we're really about raising voice and we want to hear from everybody, those that are diagnosed, family and friends that are caring for a loved one, professionals providing services, um, and advocates along with researchers. So we've had everybody on here from Harvard Research to uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that are, are making a difference. Everyone's voice is important and needs to be heard, and we all are coming with creative ideas on how to help people live a better life with dementia, how to become uh, dementia-aware and dementia-friendly. So if you think you have a story um, or maybe a service or a product or maybe it's just a con concept you think needs to be discussed, reach out to me because I would love to have you on the show so that we can have that conversation. Now, before I get started, I'd like to give a shout-out to a couple of organizations that I think are really important that not everybody knows about. The first is the Purple Angel Project, which was started over in the U.K. by, the man, by a man uh, by the name of Norms McNamara, diagnosed with the disease. And what it is, it's basically a symbol <clears throat> with a purple angel in a globe that can be used for free after you just read a one-page download about um, some of the symptoms of dementia. It's not about having all the answers. It's about becoming aware. It's about putting that, that simple symbol on your Facebook page, on your emails. Maybe it's your business in marketing. And just getting people to ask, what is it? So that you can have a conversation and let people know the need um, there is for dementia and those that care for them. 
Another organization is the Dementia Action Alliance, which is a fairly new organization here in the States that is very person-centered. <clears throat> and you can get to their website by going to www.daanow.org. And I forgot to say for the Purple Angel, just go to the Alzheimer's Speaks uh, website and then go to Projects and Initiations and you'll see a Purple Angel tab right there that you can go to. Um, here at Alive Inside, where we, um, where we do our show, I want to give a, a shout-out to a couple other shows that you might be interested in. The first is sports-oriented, and it's called Apples to Apples. And um, it's a father and son team that have a show at 2.30 on Monday, and they really banter back and forth about what's going on with sports, and it's quite, it's quite fun. So check in um, with Scott and Drew Applebaum and see if Father really knows best. The second is a show that is on every Thursday at 4 o'clock, and it's Mortgages and BS. And they talk about everything from mortgages and refinancing um, to services for your home and, and home ownership, along with um, they'll get into some entertainment and current events as well. But go ahead and check out uh, both of those. I think you'll enjoy those shows. So let's go ahead and get started um, with our guest today. I'm very excited to have her with us. In fact, um, it's always fun when family is really proud of, of what their loved ones do. And, and actually, her son reached out to me first and said, you've got to have my mom on the radio show because she's, she's written a really cool book, and it needs to get out there. And I, just, I, I think that that's fabulous when we have support like that. So our guest today is Lisa Skinner. And she is a behavioral expert in the field of Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. Uh, during her 20-year career in, elder, in the elder care industry, she helped thousands of families find the best care options for their loved ones. And in 2010, she, found, uh, she founded All Seniors Safe and Sound to empower people with the skills to effectively manage brain disease. Lisa is the new author of a book called... <clears throat> Not all who wander need be lost. Um, and it's the stories of hope for families facing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So welcome, Lisa. How are you today? I'm doing really well, Lori. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, I'm excited to have you here. You know, your background is really interesting, and the book is just its just a lovely, lovely book. And um, okay. I think that people will really enjoy it um, and um, get some powerful tips and tools. Why did you decide to write the book in the first place, Lisa? Well, that's an interesting question, and I'll tell you how it came about. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, I have actually worked in um, the elder care industry for the last two decades. And I have counseled um, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of families, helping them understand dementia when they would come. And I was a community. I started my career as a community counselor. And in the last 20 years, there is one um, very clear obstacle that I have noticed is pretty much a common thread with most of the families that I have worked with. And that is in their lack of understanding of the disease and what it's doing to their loved one's brain and um, why it's causing some of these 
very unique behaviors that we see associated with dementia. I've had so many people over the years tell me that their loved one is crazy. And we know that they're not crazy. This is not a mental illness. This is a brain disease. This is a disease that ravages the brain cells. It attacks um, different parts of the brain. And as it's attacking the different parts of the brain, um, different uh, senses are affected. So when I found myself helping families understand what was happening to their loved one, um, what, what was causing the behaviors, how to uh, respond to the, effectively respond to the behaviors, then I noticed that they were able to have a much higher quality relationship with their loved one. So fast forward about 20 years, and I recently, well, about a year and a half ago, I was asked to um, go over to a family's to uh, give them a consultation they had two things going on. Their, um, the husband's mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and the wife's father with Parkinson's disease. So they asked me to come over and they basically just wanted to get some information. And after about two and a half hours, they said to me, in the last two and a half hours, we been able to get more information and understanding from you than we have since these diagnoses were made two years ago. They said, we've been so frustrated. We were given no expectations, no resources to um, find information. And we seriously have gotten more information and more help from you in two and a half hours than we have in two years. You should put this in a book. People need to know, people like us, need to know this information. And that was kind of my aha moment Mm -hmm. because I actually have heard this. I've heard this from families so many times. But this kind of just really hit me over the head. And I started thinking, you know, I have experience, education, and knowledge that a lot of people out there don't have and don't have access to. So they're right. I should share what I know with people because it's going to help them and it's going to make their lives better and it's going to make the lives of their loved ones afflicted with Alzheimer's disease better. So um, that's what got me started on writing the book. And now a year later, it's, it's available. Well, that's wonderful. I, I think it's so critical for people to share their knowledge and I think um, one of the problems we have, you know, here in the U.S. is we, we don't think that we have valuable knowledge, you know, and we're all loaded with it in our own different ways because we see it through different eyes. We handle it different. And, you know, as you know, um, there, is, there is no cure. <clears throat> there is no magic bullet um, to fix this disease. And it really is about building a toolkit. And what better way to build your toolkit but then to get everyday practical knowledge that is, you know, kind of street smart, not just book smart, but street smart, and um, help people really live the journey as well as possible, and then empower them to share their knowledge as well, because it's, um, we're all loaded with it, uh, and we have to realize that there's somebody out there that needs, that we're two steps ahead of, 
you know, in terms of our knowledge base. And, and there will probably be a lot of people that are 20 steps in a mile ahead of us, and that's okay. But we're always ahead of somebody else, and so we can kind of... Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate that today, in 2015, we have the um, resources available to get the word out to, you know, on a global level, which we didn't 20 years ago or 30 years ago. You were limited to what information your doctor gave you or maybe what was in the library. But now with the Internet and all these resources available, YouTube and programs like yours, Lori, people do have access to the information that they're desperate for because it is a difficult disease to understand. And there are a lot of oddities to it that people um, don't even know are a part of the disease. They just think that it's only happening to their loved one. And when we share this information with people, they realize they're not alone. They're not isolated and they're not the only ones that are dealing with um, some of the behaviors and symptoms that accompany this disease. That's very true. And, you know, when we when we can hook people up, especially, like you said, through social media and such, um, they really see that they're not alone. You know, they can get up in the middle of the night and somebody on the other side of the world is awake and dealing with this and can respond and be supportive and and help, um, you know, help them. A lot of the social media, I think, was really poo-pooed as far as Facebook and the virtual groups is, oh, it, it's not the same as in person. And what I've heard from so many is, you know what, in some ways it's stronger because they're having real in-depth conversations. They're not talking about the weather. They're not talking about sports. They're talking about real life that's very emotional and um, and very expansive. And so, so many of them say they feel closer in this social media world than they do in the real world because family and friends have kind of walked away and they feel mm-hmm. abandoned and, um, and that, you know, it helps them heal. So kudos for you. Can you tell us what are some of the everyday difficulties that families face when caring for a loved one with, um, with Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia? I'd say it's probably one of the most difficult jobs that anybody would ever undertake because uh, it, if it's a spouse, you're seeing changes in your spouse that um, are foreign to you. The person is, is turning into somebody that you don't even know anymore and your role changes significantly. And true of um, uh an adult child caregiver as well. You're taking care of a parent and roles have reversed. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a very difficult position to be put in um, psychologically and emotionally. But it's also because um, this disease, as it progresses, you lose so much of your ability to basically um, uh, do any tasks of daily living and you eventually need somebody to do everything for you, it's a very demanding and daunting job for a caregiver. So what I have found is if people um, know what to expect, they understand these behaviors, they understand the symptoms, and they understand um, the best approaches to the behaviors then it can take away and relieve some of the anxiety and the stress on both parties' part. 
and they can actually, I mean, I think, and you probably agree with, with me on this, Lori, that a lot of people believe, and you mentioned in your introduction that there are stigmas attached, and I totally agree with you a thousand percent on that. But the one thing that I have um, seen is that um, people believe that once you have Alzheimer's, you can get to a certain stage that you can know the person can no longer enjoy their life, mm-hmm. and that is about as far from the truth as it gets. Because if you understand, if you're educated, if you know how to respond to the behaviors and the oddities that accompany the the disease, then um, then the caregivers can um, have a much higher quality relationship with their loved one, the family members, and the person that has the disease actually can have a very joyful, enriched life till the end. Well, I, I very much agree, and I think a lot of these behaviors, I mean, that's our take for them because they, they don't fit in to our comfort zone. But there's usually a rational reason for the behaviors if we step back and kind of put our investigative hat on on why they're reacting the way they are. They're, they're still processing. They're just processing to different knowledge bases, um, which then changes their perspective and changes their reaction, and when we don't like the reaction, we call it a problem. We call it a behavior, and it needs to be fixed. And and sometimes we get into, I think, fixing things that don't have to be fixed. There's really no harm done. But we go in and try to make them right the way they used to be, Um, and then we really escalate um, the issue and the behaviors and the emotions on both sides because we get into this win-lose mode instead of allowing people to be fluid and, and, and comfortable. In, in their own realities. And um, that's something I know I've seen in my own family. I, I've seen it in lots of others where, no, you have to get the date right. No, you have to do this. No, you have to. And it's like, well, do you really? Do you really? <laughs> do you really have to do it in, in that fashion and in that time frame? Um, you know, is, is the world going to come crashing down if you don't? Most, uh, most often, no. It's not a safety issue. It's, it's um, a different routine. It's a different process. It's, um, it's getting our egos out of the way and um, not having to be perfect all the time. And we, we live in a world where we are pushed and told and advertised to all the time that, that we are to be perfect. And, you know, if you are less than perfect, you are less than and, and you don't matter. And I think that's one of the reasons so many caregivers try to push the one that they love so much is they, they want them to be perfect. They, they don't want them to be judged. But yet we're the first one in line judging them mm-hmm. instead of explaining the disease um, to other people, which can have um, wonderful effects in terms of compassion and empathy. But when we don't explain and we're so busy trying to hide it, um, we don't give others the opportunity to know what's really going on. And so I, I think that, again, is one of the wonderful reasons for your, for your book. Can you give um, maybe a couple of examples of, of things that, you know, really just stretch a family in terms of, um, you know, m- maybe something very specific in terms of what families struggle with? Yes, I sure can. Um, so 
one of my contentions is that um, you know as many as ninety percent of the caregivers today who are caring for loved ones with uh, Alzheimer's or another dementia-related illness are actually family members. And um, this is a job that really does not come with any toolkit or training manual. So to give you a really great example of what I'm talking about, it's um, a story that's in my book, and it um, basically what the stories do is every single story illustrates um, one or more common behaviors that are associated with the disease and then kind of an explanation of it, why it's occurring, and then maybe, um, you know, a best approach to it. So there's a phenomenon that, that occurs with dementia that we call stranger in the mirror. And this is one of the most popular stories as it's turning out in the book. People just seem to really enjoy the story, but most people have never heard of it. So what stranger in the mirror is, is when a person gets to a certain point in the disease, and this is all related to the short-term memory. The short-term memory is the first part of the brain, the hippocampus, that where our, mem- our short-term memory is stored is attacked. So we see the effects of a person's short-term memory diminishing. Um, that's one of the first signs. But this process continues throughout the um, length of the illness, and it can be you know, three to 20 years, uh, depending on the person and the type of dementia they have and what's causing the dementia. Because the short-term memory is the first to be um, affected, basically the short-term memory during the process of the disease is almost, if you can think of it like a light switch being turned on and turned off. So sometimes the light switch in the beginning of the disease, the light switch meaning the short-term memory is intact, is on more times than it's off. And then that reverses as the disease progresses. So by the end of the disease, the short-term memory switch is off more than it's on. But in between, it's on and it's off, and it's on and it's off, and it's on and it's off. And this is what actually is the underlying root of a lot of the behaviors that uh, we see with people with dementia is that short-term memory switch being turned on and off, on and off, on and off. So back to stranger in the mirror. There comes a time with people where their short-term memory is off, whether it's off permanently or off temporarily. And some people lose 20 30, 40, even 50 years of their life in the present. And in their mind, they live in a different period of time. And the period of time that they live in is different for each person. Some people regress back to their infant uh, or toddler stages. Some are adolescents. Some are um, young adults. But it's somewhere in their long-term memory, in their past lifetime. The short-term memory is becoming erased. So what happens is they reach a point and they no longer relate to life in the present time. They're somewhere back in another time of their life. 
So when they look in the mirror, they see an older version of themselves that they don't recognize because in their mind, they are much younger than the age that they really are. So what happens in Stranger in the Mirror is people will, uh, with dementia will look in a mirror, they don't recognize themselves, and they literally think it's a stranger. Well, this can manifest in many different ways. The story in the book actually happens to be a story about my uncle, my father's twin brother, who um, had an experience with Stranger in the Mirror, and it was such a cute little story that I really wanted to tell it. But when I finish telling the story, I will also tell how it could um, be very threatening or negative to somebody with the same experience. So my uncle went running into the living room one day and said to my Aunt Nancy, who's that guy out in the hall? And she says, what guy? He says, that man standing in the hall. So she looks around the corner and she sees that he's referring to the long, full-length mirror that's hanging in the hallway. And she realizes that he's looking at himself. So she says, oh, that's Harold. And that happens to be my uncle's name, for lack of a better, quick-witted thing to say. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, then over the next few months, she hears Harold talking to himself in the mirror and carrying on these conversations and, um, you know, becoming friends with this guy. He thinks he's real. So one day Harold comes busting into the living room and accuses Nancy of taking his sunglasses. And of course we all know that's another common behavior of uh, dementia is paranoia and suspiciousness. And she says, without even looking up from her magazine, she says, I didn't take your sunglasses. Because according to my aunt, she's used to these accusations on a regular basis. So the next thing she hears is Harold going to the mirror and saying, you didn't take my sunglasses, did you, buddy? Nah, I don't think you're that kind of guy. Um, I think we're friends, and I don't think you would do that to me. And then he just kind of wandered off. Well, one day she said that she went into the hallway and she found a bunch of smashed up Lorna Dune cookies on the floor and that he obviously was trying to share his cookies with Mirror Harold. And then the last thing that was really cute about this story was he came in uh, one day and he was talking about his friend Harold and he said, you know, I must really, really like this guy because I noticed that I even gave him, that I even gave, hello? Yes, we're here. Okay, okay, sorry. Um, that I even gave him my shoes. So here's a man who um, believes that this is a real being. Now, to him, he wasn't a threat. But I have also heard stories, this one friend of mine's grandfather saw himself in the mirror, didn't recognize himself, and thought that he was a threat to him and took out a knife and started stabbing at the mirror because he believed the man was going to hurt him. Now, this is where this knowledge would really come in handy for caregivers and our family members. So let's because this is a very common thing that happens. Let's say that a caregiver 
takes a loved one in to give them a shower. And all of a sudden, the person with the Alzheimer's disease refuses to take the shower. Out of nowhere, out of absolutely no reason, just flat out refuses. So you have a potential battle on your hands. Well, if you didn't know about stranger-in-the-mirror phenomenon, you might not stop to think that maybe that person saw their reflection in the mirror as they were walking in towards the shower, didn't recognize themselves, and believed that there was a stranger in the room and that they were absolutely not going to take their clothes off with a stranger standing in the room. Or... Another story I've heard is that they thought it was a window and a stranger was peering in through the window at them. So this knowledge, these tools, these behaviors, and what causes these behaviors, if people know about them and are prepared for them, then they might be able, through process of elimination, figure out that, oh, today they're, re- they're refusing to take a shower because they think a stranger is staring at them and they're not going to take their clothes off in front of a stranger. So what do you do? You either remove the mirror from the room so you don't have that situation arise or you can cover it up because with dementia, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Mm -hmm. So if they don't see the reflection, then there's no um, risk of them thinking there's a stranger present and then, you know, they get they refuse to shower. So that's one of the stories that um, I've told in the book that I am hoping will um, prepare people for, for knowing that this phenomenon does occur. And most people say, I never in a million years would have thought that they don't recognize themselves in the mirror because their short-term memory is diminished and they think that they're a young, actually a younger version of themselves. So how could I be staring at this myself if it's this old person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very true. Um, and that does, that does happen an awful lot. Um, I know in an, another example of that kind of um, where they're living in a, in a different reality is when somebody might get called a wrong name. And I've told the story before on the air, but I'll, it's just appropriate to say here where my mom would call me her mother and Mm -hmm. she would call my brother, um, Chuck, which was her brother. And, you know, my brother used to get so upset that she would call him Chuck. And, you know, how could he, how could she not know her own child? And, you know, I had to explain to him that, Mark, she's gone back in time before she was married, before she had kids. And he wasn't born yet. Yeah. yeah, And if and if you go back and and look in the mirror, you look like Uncle Chuck when he was younger. And that's a compliment. She loved Uncle Chuck, you know, and she sees you as a good person. And, you know, you can't ask for any more than that. And, you know, when she would call me her mom, she healed a a really bad relationship she had with her mom somehow through my caring role. And she would introduce me as, and this is my mother, and she takes such good care of me, and it would just melt my heart. But I, I didn't care about the name. I just cared about the connection. And I think it's getting people back to, you know, the core source of what our relationships are about. We're, we're all way more than a name, you know. And, and so, what you're saying is, is um, so true. And one of the things that I always 
help my families try to understand is there'll come a time where they might get your name wrong or they might not recognize your you by your face and make the connection of what the relationship is because of the short-term memory being erased. Mm -hmm. But they will always know that they're connected to you in some way. The body doesn't forget that connection. Their heart doesn't forget that connection. And when people understand that, then they feel a lot better about it because that is like you mentioned, your brother would get so angry because he was probably feeling like rejected by his mother. How could how could my mother not even remember her own son? Yep. She knew there was a connection, but because she was living in a different period of time than our reality, she still knew that there was some relationship there. She just didn't get the relationship exactly right yep. because of of the the difference in in the two realities. And once people understand that, then they feel a lot better about um, the situations as they arise because it gives them a much better understanding of what's happening to their loved one and they Mm -hmm. can cope with it a lot better. It's not that they're intentionally forgetting them or they weren't important enough to remember. They're just remembering them differently. Now, um, one of the other um, common scenarios that families run into is when a person with dementia believes that someone who has passed, maybe a spouse, is still alive. And how how should they react to that? That's a very common occurrence. Again, it's because of the short-term memory uh, being either turned off, turned on, diminished, erased, whatever stage it is. But there's a story in my book about that, too. My mother-in-law also, uh, we went through Alzheimer's with her, and we um, shared uh, caregiving with uh, my husband's other family members. So we had her, I think, um, on average, about every other weekend. Mm -hmm. So this one particular day that I write about in the book, we were sitting there and everything was fine. I think we had the television on and I think an episode of Andy Griffith was on and we were just, everything was calm and relaxed and um, no issues, no problems. And then out of the blue, she sat up and became very anxious and she said, oh my goodness, I just realized, does Marty know where I am? Now, Marty was her husband. Mm-hmm. But Marty had also been, uh, had passed away about four years earlier. And I had already been working in the industry, so I knew better than to not say to her, what are you talking about? Don't you remember, Mom? Marty, Marty passed away four years ago. I knew that she believed that he was alive. She was worried that he didn't know where she was and that he was sitting home waiting for her to come and fix his dinner. So I said to her, oh, don't worry about it. I just talked to him on the phone. He knows you're here and that I'll be bringing you home shortly to um, give him his dinner. And she sat back down. She said, are you sure? Are you sure? And I said, I'm positive. Everything's fine. He knows you're here and he knows that you'll be home soon. So you don't need to worry. He does know where you are. And then we went back to what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, if I had told her what our gut instincts 
want us to tell them because our gut reactions are to correct them. We want to pull them back into our reality, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is an absolutely impossible thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had to join her reality to diffuse the problem, make her feel safe and secure that she no longer had a concern or a worry. And once I accomplished that, we could get on with what we were doing. If I had said to her, oh, mom, don't you remember? Marty's been dead for four years. Don't you remember we were all at his funeral and -and so-and-so was there and -and so-and-so was there and we did this and we had food and yada, yada, yada. It would have been like she was hearing it for the very first time. And she could have absolutely panicked or or went into um, terrible distress, not realizing that her husband had passed away and nobody told her. Yep. So the best approach, and a lot of people say, but isn't that lying? It's not lying. It's joining their reality. And there's a huge difference between the two. She believes what she believes, and there's nothing that anybody can say to change that belief. That is her reality, even if it's for five minutes. It might be for two minutes. It might be for hours, and it might be for the rest of her life, but it is her reality. And there's absolutely nothing that anyone could say to make her believe differently. The only thing that somebody's going to accomplish by trying to correct them draw them back into our reality, tell them what they're saying is not true, is to cause stress and distress for the person that believes what they believe for that time. So that actually is the recommended approach. Um, When somebody has a false belief is to join their reality and, and then maybe get them off onto a different subject, redirect them, but always acknowledge what they're believing or what they're asking, diffuse it, get them to feel secure and confident that there's no reason for alarm or concern, and then move on to something else and they'll forget about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other thing that I found too, and I don't know if you have, but that... um you know, typically you'll get asked that multiple times and what worked in one moment might not work the next moment. And mm-hmm. and being aware of that as well, that you, you never really know what the reactions are, are going to be. And, um, and that's important um, to be able to... So for that very reason, and you're absolutely right, it doesn't always... Um, the first thing you try does not always work. So if you're equipped with good tools in your toolbox, then you can pull one tool out at a time and try different things. But that takes knowledge and education to have the tools in the toolbox to even be able to have as a resource. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many different methodologies and techniques and things like that to diffuse these situations, but people need to be aware of them to know what they have to work with. Exactly. I know my mom used to ask, and I mean, we tried all different types of things. We, you know, we tried um, originally saying, you know, telling her that dad passed and that was really upsetting. And why wasn't she told and she should have been to the funeral and, you know, all of that. And we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. that that didn't work. (laughs) And then then we tried saying um, that, you know, dad was at work or he just stepped out. 
um, and he'll be back. She, you know, she'll see, she'll see him later. And mm-hmm. that calmed her down. And mm-hmm. um, she could rationalize with that. And, you know, maybe she's not going to see him in this world, but she'll see him in the next. And, you know, that's kind of how we justified it. And, and, and the other thing we did was, you know, we really, I developed a tool called your memory chip that really says what we need to focus on are three simple things with a person with dementia. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? So what's mm-hmm. going to put them in that zone? Because it really is about their comfort, and it's right. and it's not about it's not about the truth. The truth doesn't matter. You know, our reality doesn't matter. Their reality does, and right. and so you know that's a big that's a really big change for how most of us live our lives. And you know, we have to get well, a lot of people don't know that because mm-hmm. they've never they've never had anybody tell them that that's what's happening. That's what's going on, and they're just. Um, usually unbeknownst to them, making the situation worse because they aren't equipped to um, effectively manage the behaviors and the loss of memory. And, um, you know, you had mentioned early, and I wanted to um, to kind of um, make that point again, that the behaviors, what we call behaviors, I don't like to put the label on it, but that's essentially what it is and the symptoms um there's always a reason that's causing them and the reason stems out of their inability to express themselves or to communicate what's really going on so we as the caregivers or the family members if we are um, aware of these things then we can start our process of elimination, just like you mentioned, Lori, and make sure that it's that they're not in pain, that they're not unsafe, that there's something else not going on, that, that they're trying to communicate a need, a want, or desire that they just cannot articulate anymore. So it comes, it's manifested in some type of other form of expression, which we call behaviors. Maybe they'll scream. Maybe they'll start cussing. Maybe they'll lash out. Maybe, I mean, there are so many different forms of expression, but that's what it is. It's a form of expression to let us know that they need something, they want something, they desire something, they're in pain, they're uncomfortable, they're hungry, um, and they have no way of telling us that. So if you see a behavior, there's, a, you, there's um, you know, a, pretty much 99.9% chance that it's their way of trying to communicate that there's something going on that they are desperately trying to tell us. But because they can't tell us, it's our job to recognize uh, the behavior for what it is and then to try to figure out through process of elimination what's going on with them. Agree, agree. I always say um, when I go out and speak and, and talk with people that they use the same equation we do. They're just pu- you know pulling from a different well. So it's basically mm-hmm. you know their um, <clears throat> their reaction to anything comes from their adi- their current attitude. What kind of mood are they in? And their um, their past experience and those two things create their perception and then their perception triggers their reaction and when we don't like the reaction then we label it a behavior and um, and if we go in reverse we can usually figure out what's causing the issue 
you know, with with uh, with them. Why why are they interpreting it different? And I mean, it could right. be their reaction could you know come from I mean strange things from light and shadowing and you know creating paranoia um, uh, paranoia to um, maybe it's too hot or too cold and they're really just disco- you know uh, uncomfortable or they have to go to the bathroom. You know, and they're trying to communicate, like you said, they're trying to communicate those things to us, and we're not interpreting all the nonverbal signs um, that are before us, and we're not um, integrating their history um, into the equation, which is really important if we're going to be, you know, person-centered. Um, we have to have some, some basic knowledge of them. So let's, let's move on here um, and talk about a couple other things. Um, Another, I think, issue people really deal with is, you know, from a family, are you abandoning your parent by placing them in some type of community setting? And and how would you answer that one? I get that a lot. <laughs> and sometimes they don't even have to come out and ask me that question. I can just tell that they're experiencing tremendous guilt over even over the idea of placement. Mm-hmm. And I honestly believe that with dementia, putting somebody in um, the right environment could mean the difference between a, a low quality of life and a high quality of life. Um, because of the disease itself. This is a, a, a disease that um, people need stimulation. They need to um, be with people who are trained and equipped to manage um, the effects of the disease. And I will give you a really, really sad but, but true, valuable example of what I'm saying. So um, there was this gentleman... I'll call him Sam. His name is Sam in, in my book. And he actually um, was in an assisted living facility. Assisted living facilities are designed to to help people with their activities of daily living. They're not necessarily designed for people who are in their uh, mid to, to advanced stages of dementia. Um, there are dementia care or memory care um, wings that are... Um, specifically set up just to care for people with dementia. And this guy was not in one of those. He was in a regular assisted living. Well, this gentleman was withdrawing. He um, no longer showed any interest in going out to participate in um, any of the activities. And the care staff was um, basically doing everything for him dressing him, feeding him. He he reached a point where he just laid in his bed all day long because he had everything um, done for him. And then um, a friend of mine just opened um, a new memory care um, wing to that assisted living. And she went um, to the assisted living to assess the... Um, all the residents who were in the assisted living to see if any of them would be more appropriate for the memory care. And she came upon Sam. And when she um, went in to assess him, he was curled up in a fetal position on his bed and basically just um, 
kind of in a vegetative state. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that the caregivers mistook his social withdrawal for cognitive decline. And I want to make sure that people understand the difference because this is a disease that you cannot get better from. It's progressive. It's degenerative. You you do worsen from it. But his withdrawal was mistaken for cognitive decline. And they just thought that he was um, much um, more cognitively impaired than it turns out he was. He had just withdrawn socially because he he had no stimulation and he had people doing every single thing for him. So anyway, she suggested to the executive director that Sam come over. She thought he you know, would be um, appropriate for memory care versus a so or more appropriate for memory care than assisted living. And um, she had um, a very, very specific memory care, dementia care programming programming in place in her care facility and she started working with him and so he ended up going from a man who couldn't talk he hadn't spoken words for over a year he couldn't do anything for himself he couldn't walk to um one day he was sitting in the um assembly room and uh they were playing old time music um from from sam's generation and old Lang Syne came on. And he was sitting there just kind of, you know, seemed like he was engaged, but he still wasn't saying anything. And then all of a sudden, he just started singing along with the song. Turns out he was a World War II vet. Mm-hmm. And the song really struck home with him. It triggered memories. And within six months, this man started talking again because she knew um, she was such an expert in in the disease, and she recognized a lot of the things that were going on with him that weren't necessarily that he was at the end stage of his disease, but he had just completely withdrawn, was withdrawn socially and emotionally. He he walked again, he talked again, and it was it was almost like a miracle. I actually met the man because uh, I worked at that facility. And it was amazing the difference that um, in the few months that he was there between the way he came into the facility and the way he just blossomed because he was with people who knew what they were doing. And I can't say that that's necessarily true of every single facility. I think it's very important for people to make sure that if they are considering placing somebody in a memory care wing that they um, they do have dementia care programming in place and that the staff are trained um, on all these things that you and I are talking about. So they recognize these signs and what to do about them, how to respond to them, what to look for, how to go through this process of elimination. So what I tell people is if they, you know, and I help them find those places, um, if they're in the right environment, then being in a care facility can mean all the difference to the quality of the person's life. And just case in point, I had many, 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 because I was um, a community counselor for many years, and I had 
so many families say, oh, gosh, but I promised my mom I'd never put her in one of those places or I'd have siblings at odd where some siblings were for it and some were absolutely against it. And in many cases, if it was the right environment and they finally, you know, I would say, why don't you try it out? for 30 days and see if you don't notice a, a difference in um, your loved one's um, just whole attitude and and um, change in, in their behaviors. And more times than not, people would come back to me and say, I wish I had known what you told me. I wish I had done this sooner um, because I've never seen my mom in two years as happy as she is now. So, you know, it's not 100% foolproof, but what I've seen, what I've experienced in 20 years, that if people are in the right environment with dementia and they're, um, they're given the right tools to have an enriched, happy life, then they usually end up happier than being cared for and stuck in, you know, like maybe placed in front of a television set all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's definitely an important factor in that. So, I know for myself, I you know we had to place my mom in a nursing home, and actually my dad first um, with his brain cancer, and that was really hard. And you know, with my dad, it was pretty much doctor ordered; he couldn't live independently at all. And with my mom, <clears throat> she was always going to stay with us, and she did for about two weeks, and and then woke up one day really clear, saying she wanted to move in with my dad and I remember looking at her shocked like no one asked to move into a nursing home you know and and uh why would you ever want that mom and she said you know she just had one of those moments of clarity that you can't deny and she said we've been together 49 and a half years and I'm not leaving them now yeah and, and it was like I, I've, I've had that happen too yeah, yeah. And, and you can't really blame them no no that's that's all she's she's ever known you know with that um So I think, honestly, if people want to care for their parents at home, which I think is awesome. I took care of my mother for three years. She didn't have dementia. She uh, had medical problems. Um, I'm certainly an advocate of that, but I think people need to be equipped with this knowledge if they're going to take that on because it's going to be, like we discussed earlier, the most difficult thing they've ever taken on in their lives, much more difficult than raising children. And um, if, if, if you're prepared, then it can be a better um, situation for both parties. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Definitely it can be. What do you um, tell people about making the most of the time they have left with their loved one? Well, You've probably seen this um, too, Lori, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, one of the things that I've personally seen is is, um, a lot of times family members don't go visit their loved ones um, in care facilities, and the number one reason is they're afraid to Mm -hmm. because they don't know what to do, they don't know what to expect, they don't know how to respond, they don't know how to act, and so it's easier to avoid than deal with um, 
with the fear of the unknown mm-hmm. and be put in a very uncomfortable situation. So what I tell people is if they can understand the disease, understand the behaviors, learn effective um, ways to respond, then there's no need to be afraid. They will have um, a very high-quality relationship. Well, this is what I tell them. This is what I tell them. So this would be very similar to, let's say all of a sudden you parent, you know, as, as we age, we, we lose our hearing, right? Mm-hmm. And you're able to converse with your parent your whole life, and then all of a sudden your dad loses his hearing, and he can't understand a word you're saying anymore. Mm-hmm. So are you just going to stop talking to him? No. You still want to have a relationship, and you still want to figure out a way that he will understand. So you're going you're gonna to come up with, with alternatives, with other ways and means to communicate, whether that be you learn you both learn sign language, you learn to read your lips, you write everything down on paper, but you're still going to find a way to communicate. It's just a different way. Dementia is exactly the same thing. They've lost their ability to communicate, so don't be afraid to still have a relationship with your loved one. You're just going to learn a different way to communicate with them, and that, I want everybody to know, is possible, and it's beautiful. And I've seen people, once they do, they're equipped with this knowledge and these tools, just have wonderful rich, fulfilling, loving relationships with people with dementia. Wonderful. Um, last question is, uh, you know, because a lot of families ask this, is it possible for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia to get better? Well, it's a progressive illness. You don't get better. You get worse. It um, It is a terminal illness, but it's kind of two-pronged answer to that question. You can make the most and the best out of each stage of the illness, but like in Sam's case, um, he showed improvement because he was put in an environment that, that catered to his illness. Because what was mistaken for cognitive decline and progression in the illness was really social and emotional withdrawal from no, no stimulation. So to answer the, que- the question directly is no, you can't get better from it. There, there is no cure and there's no way to, to stop the progression and, re- and or reverse it. But if, um, you can you can stimulate people um, in ways that can provide a very enriched um, life for them if you know how to go about doing that. Okay. And there are many many ways to do that. Okay, great. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Lisa. Again, her book is called Not All Wa- Not All Who Wander Need to Be Lost, and it's uh, stories of hope for families facing Alzheimer's and dementia. It's kind of like a little uh, chicken soup for the soul, um, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? Um, kind of a similar format with, with different mm-hmm. stories in here. 
um, things that, you know, one's called a divided family. There's one on sundowning, um, the pillbox. Um, I mean, it's just all kinds of things. Doggy dementia. Um, and yeah, I have a 16-year-old dog with dementia. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I put a story that Oliver into because most people, including me, did not even realize dogs get dementia, and they do. <laughs> yep, yep, very, very true. Um, now, for people to to reach out to you, they can go to your website, which is www.seniorsafeandsound.com, and that's all spelled out, seniorsafeandsound.com, or they can find you on Facebook um, just in the search engine, put in All Seniors Safe and Sound, and they can find the book on Amazon as well. And you can just go to Amazon and put in uh, Lisa Skinner, or you can put in the title, Not All Who Wander Need Be Lost. And uh, you'll be able to, to find information um, and connect with Lisa if you would like. Any last comments you'd like to share with our audience, Lisa? Yeah, um, if you are interested in reading the book, it's available both uh, in uh, the Kindle version and a paperback edition. And I would, um, if you read the book and are interested in writing a review, I would love um, to get your feedback about it. Um, and and hopefully it's, it will end up being very helpful to you. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Lisa. I, I want to wish you a wonderful holiday season. And thanks for sharing your time and your knowledge with us today. I appreciate it very much. And say hi to your son, Ken, too, who is our original contact letting us know about the wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, I will. And um, thank you again so much for having me on the show. And uh, at least we know the two of us will will, uh, keep forging on with our mission to raise awareness so people can live happier lives with this disease. Exactly. Exactly. For those of you who um, didn't get a chance to listen to our shows last week, we did two. Uh, One was with the director who wrote the film Inside My Being, which is just absolutely fabulous. And that one um, gives us kind of the the, uh, conscious thoughts of both a mother and a daughter um, during their scenes and what they're really thinking in their heads as they're looking and interacting with one another. We also had a show with author Christine uh, Grout, who wrote um, Where Memories Meet, Reclaiming My Father After Alzheimer's, um, and she shares her journey. And she writes a book in a a narrative perspective. One is hers, one is her dad's, and they come from um, two different angles. So one is from birth to death, and the other is from, from basically death to birth and how they meet in the middle there. Next week, we are going to have Richard uh, Fenker with us, and he is the author of a new book that's going to be coming out called Don't Rain on My Parade, Living Life uh, to Its Fullest with Alzheimer's. And he's also part of the Mind Partner Program, which he'll highlight for us as well. We had our uh, Dementia Chats uh, program on the 8th, which is on the website. You can go and, and watch that. And we'll be doing another one next week on the 22nd as well. On the blog, there's a couple of articles I want to just mention to you. One was posted on the 11th called Rummaging, and it is all about interpreting behaviors to provide more meaning and purpose into a loved one's um, life with dementia. And we just got great comments um, in all different types of modes from the blog and LinkedIn and Twitter and 
etc. Um, people really, really liked this article by Jennifer Bush. So check that out. And then back on the 6th, I'm just going to mention this again. There is a, a short film that was done by Alina Health, Life Course, and TPT. And it focuses on three different amazing um, projects here in Minnesota. And it's entitled Late Life Making a Difference. And it focuses on care guides, which I personally didn't know anything about, which is really a cool concept. Thrivers, which is more um, dealing with people with cancer, but I think it's applicable uh, to people with dementia, which I think could be really neat. And then the last, um, the last uh, project that they uh, worked on was uh, memory cafes. And so, of course, those are dear, uh, very dear to my heart. We've got over 200 of them now in the U.S., and uh, it's just fun to see them popping up all the time. Again, want to give a shout-out to Mortgages and BS, who are here on a live in social on Thursdays at 4 o'clock, and also Apples to Apple with uh, Scott and Drew uh, Applebaum on Mondays at 2.30. They're going to talk more about sports, and you'll find out if Father truly knows best. Um, Have a safe and wonderful holiday season. We'll be back here next week to speak with you and uh, to share more knowledge. Um, Please like and click and share um, not only this show, but some of the others. Everything is archived. And again, if you think you might be um, our next guest, reach out to me. I would love to have a chat with you. In the meantime, use the three... um, the three skills that are noted on your memory chip, which is a free tool you can download off of alzheimerspeaks.com, but focusing on are they safe, are they happy, are they pain-free. Cheers, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond, I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.